there, listener, and welcome back to another episode of I Statement. I'm your host, Angela, and I hope you're having a wonderful day, night, week, whatever you're doing, wherever you're at. And I hope this podcast finds you well and healthy in all sense of the meaning. I am here today to tell y'all that I got into grad school. (laughs) I know I've been talking about this in my last couple of episodes, but honestly, I am so excited and I'm not trying to brag or boast about it. And if we're being honest, this accomplishment is something I really never envisioned myself achieving. I really never thought I would be going to grad school or even getting in at all. This is something that I chose for myself. I wanted to apply. I set that process in motion and I did it. And you know what? I'm really proud of myself and I'm not going to play that down and I'm not going to think any less of it and try and dull down the really exciting reality that it's presenting for me. I am thrilled. I feel as though I have overcome so much adversity so much pressure, so many doubts, and just a past that I didn't think would be able to produce a future as promising as the one that is opening up for me. And I couldn't be more darn excited about it. (laughs) I've been really happy about these grad school decisions that have been rolling out. I'm currently waiting on two more I've been accepted to two very good schools, Northeastern and Middlebury College, and I am just psyched beyond words. I really am so excited, and I encourage you all, whoever's listening, to celebrate something that happens in your life. It does not have to be a grad school acceptance. It can literally be that you made the most amazing French toast that morning and you are so proud of yourself because you've been screwing up the recipe for who knows why for the last month. And finally, you did it. You made it right. Literally, those simple, simple achievements and accomplishments, just those little joys, I've been trying to celebrate them throughout my days because honestly, I've been feeling a little down. Uh, Virtual learning has gotten to me. I tried not to let it happen, but it sure has. I am experiencing major screen fatigue, screen exhaustion, just online assignment dread and exhaustion. I can't even explain it. I feel like I've never looked at a computer before until now and just been so, like, not looking forward (laughs) to going on Canvas and seeing what I have to do or writing this paper to fill up some empty void that apparently isn't being filled from remote classes and just to provide substance to the course. It's it's so frustrating as a student who is already taking a lot more classes than I wish I had to be taking right now. But just in general, it is so, so frustrating. And on top of that, my college is currently working through some spring break modifications. First of all, it's a Vermont-wide mandate that no colleges have spring break uh, in 2021, which, of course, we are all in compliance with, and that makes 100% total sense. Champlain College, my school, 
has a strong emphasis on community wellness and well-being. Whether that's just a marketing strategy or if it's really true, I debate that constantly. But to give them props, we do have a spring break mitigation committee in effect right now trying to decide what the best course of action is for both students, faculty and staff, and not even just those two groups, but the Champlain College community as a whole. And currently what's happening is I have been hearing conversations of staff and faculty who consider the pandemic and its deliverables, I guess, or circumstances that it's given to college students and faculty, staff, and the rest of the community alike. It's labeling those circumstances as mild adversities. They are not very significant, and any plan we put in place should be very, very simple and very easy to affect, and if anything, we have been infantilizing our students, and in turn, we should be instilling resilience in them to overcome these quote-unquote mild adversities. This is the general rhetoric that the faculty and staff have been projecting and using in their defense of a proposal for spring break mitigation of some kind. Let me tell you, as one of the very, very few, less than five few, student voices on these committees who have input, this is absolutely so upsetting and devastating to me, and it is so hard to speak up on behalf of the entire Champlain student body to advocate for our whole health and well-being and to emphasize how important a break is and the fact that we are missing one this semester are having to go fully virtual for the last three weeks, which includes Hell Week and Finals Week, and starting back up a week later, and on top of that, two weeks fully virtual because students are coming back to campus and we need to have a campus-wide quarantine. Let me tell you, (laughs) that transition in and of itself is going to be a horrible, awful nightmare. I am not looking forward to it. (laughs) I will be student teaching, so thankfully... I don't really have to worry about the beginning of the spring semester and how classes are going to run, but I am, of course, advocating on behalf of the entire Champlain student body, and the fact that, of course, we're missing a spring break, which in and of itself is already such a loss because, honestly, I'm not a spring breaker, I am a spring rester. (laughs) During that break, every single year for college, I have not gone away. I have gone home or I have stayed in Vermont, and I have slept, and I have seen my family, and I have done the things that I haven't been able to do for the last seven weeks in a blissful state of just peace. (laughs) Usually peace. The fact that that is not happening is already something that's kind of hard to grasp and get a hold on. I'm really it's it's sad. It's it's really hard that we do have to face this. This whole academic year, 2020 to 2021, is just, it's it's unfortunate and it's it's been a very hard challenge to navigate. And I really wish that the Champlain College community, who markets itself as being very aware of students' health and well-being and community wellness as a whole, is not taking this spring break planning, like alternatives to it, very seriously. 
And the problem we're having right now is we're trying to reason with the fact that, okay, if we do make any changes, period, that is going to signal to students that they kind of have a break and that they can go home, which is absolutely not the message that we want to send. And I've heard from students that they will go home if there are changes made to our courses, the academic calendar, anything of the sort. So that's really not good because the whole point of having no spring break is so we can continue to stay flex hybrid for the entire semester and not have students come back to campus, not quarantine correctly in March, and spread coronavirus or the flu for whatever, you know, because it's that time of the year as well, around campus. Unwillingly, unabashedly, just for whatever reason, because they had to go here or they had to go there. It's really frustrating. And I feel as though I am put in a box, in a hard place. (laughs) I'm a rock in a hard place. As a student who deeply wants to advocate on behalf of the entire student body for maintaining our health and mental wellness and sanity during this very adverse time, I would say. I don't think it's mild. I think it's pretty extreme. I try to not react too heavily to things. Like, I consider myself to be someone who... I, I dislike the word resilient. I really do not like the word resilient, but I really try and make the best of a situation or try and do my best in any given situation. And I will admit firsthand that this semester has been one of the most challenging semesters I have ever had. Probably one of the most challenging time periods I have ever had, despite the good things that have been happening to me, despite my advances in my career, despite the connections I'm making, despite so many positive things, There is an overwhelming, looming negativity in the air, literally in the air, (laughs) circling around us in little air droplets, and it's been really, really hard. And I sympathize and empathize with every single person who is having a hard time with this, and that is every single person. So, just know that (laughs) if Champlain comes out with a less than ideal situation for spring break. It's not my fault. (laughs) I am trying, y'all. It's, it's so hard, and I, I do understand faculty, like, they do have courses to teach, they do have a curriculum to get through and to abide by and adhere to, and I really do think that they want to provide the best student experience or, like, academic experience, but they're doing it in a way that is so banking and is just, like, contingent on the fact that they're able to give us information that we retain because we're just, like, receptacles. We're not valued as human beings who require their wellness to be positive and maintained in a time where things are really hard. And that is what is so bothersome and what is so embedded, unfortunately, in the hidden curricula of not only Champlain, of higher ed institutions in general. I'm fortunate that we're having a conversation at my college about what to do for some kind of reprieve from a really long spring semester. But at the same time, the outlooks of that conversation and this planning, they don't look super great. (laughs) So sorry to burst anyone's bubble now, but we're trying, I'm trying, it's really hard. Everything is so hard, and I I really do empathize with everyone who is having a hard time. I get it. It's so hard. 
I had no plans in my notes to talk about any of that, but clearly it was something that was weighing heavily on my mind. And I wish they were bringing more students in to make these really critical decisions about, honestly, like pedagogy in general, like digital pedagogy. It's absolutely ridiculous that there is not a more integrative, like cohesive unit that is tackling this issue. Anyway, I could do a whole podcast episode on that, but that's not the point of this podcast. I am back with another (laughs) podcast in response to an assignment that I have for my absolute favorite class, Managing the Learning Environment. For this class this week, we've been asked a few questions that we can respond to. We have to respond to two, and I've chosen two pretty good ones that I'm excited to talk about today. And I keep remembering as I pull my major and my education into this podcast and fulfill assignments with it, I'm moving a bit away from I statements, and I don't mean that intentionally, but I'm going to try and incorporate them as best I can here. And I'm also trying to remember that these I statements, they can be developed over time. I can have had those creeds for a long time before, and I can readdress them now. It's not a big deal. It's still me talking. It's me. I am here. (laughs) That is my creed right now. That is what I am projecting into the world my set of beliefs as I go forward here and act, I am here. And I am here to answer two questions for my assignment. And the first one deals with the classroom environment. And it asks, how will you keep your sanity in the classroom and balance in your life? Well, my professor sure knows, as he is a third grade teacher, that this is no easy task. As educators, we are so devoted to the well-being and the state of our classroom for our students because it is so influential in how they learn. A disheveled classroom, a classroom that's disorganized, a classroom that is set up in a way that conveys no purpose either for academia or belonging, belonging being the more important component of that, that does not contribute to student success or beneficial outcomes. That contributes to students who feel like they are lost or they might feel like they're not a part of a community. They might feel as though they're in a space that doesn't respect them or value their needs to be organized and be in a space that feels secure. It's so many things. But in answering this question, I thought about not only my role as an educator to set up a space that promotes collaboration and a strong classroom community, as well as strong individual student-teacher relationships, but also a space that emphasizes self-discipline, as I believe that that is absolutely key to classroom management. Robert J. Marzano supports this idea in his work, Classroom Management That Works, which we've been reading all semester, and he states that students should be given the message that they are responsible for their own behavior and that they should be provided with strategies and training to realize that control. He states that on page 77, and, you know, students don't come with these behaviors of self-discipline and self-regulation inherently. It is up to their educators, their teachers, to teach them responsibility, whatever that looks like in their classroom community, that classroom environment, and beyond. And it's also our responsibility to prepare students to be responsible citizens, as that contributes to their positive social skills and academic achievement. Self-discipline is critical. I know that just for myself, I of, of course everyone needs self-discipline, 
If I didn't have, you know, me holding me accountable, telling me that there's sometimes only me at the end of the day and I'm responsible for me, I mean, who would I, who would I be? Dependent on others? <laughs> and the students can't have that either. They're equal participants and they are equally responsible for maintaining a classroom environment that promotes sanity for all members and also contributes to their own needs. Like, they are responsible. We've talked a lot about in class how we shouldn't have the teacher-student dichotomy and, uh, like, separate entities. It should be a community of learners. And self-discipline among everybody is essential to that space that promotes balance and sanity for all members. Robert J. Marzano also talks about how self-regulation involves examining one's thoughts as expressed in inner dialogue, considering the consequences of actions that are being considered along with alternative actions, and then selecting the most effective and positive course of action. That's on page 78. So this process of self-regulation, which needs to be taught, involves a lot of a conversation and discourse within oneself with your inner dialogue, that inner dialogue that you're constantly having and that has been dictated by your past experiences. Anything that has happened in our past really influences that internal dialogue, that inner, that self-talk, that internal speech that we are communicating all day long. By promoting self-regulation in the classroom, we're promoting a least restrictive environment that avoids extreme punishments, like suspensions and expulsions. When we teach students how to self-regulate, how to be proactive, how to work through things either in their heads or out loud, with a partner, with a teacher, with a trusted peer, with whomever they need, we can avoid those really strict alternative punishments and we can be better about acknowledging that We all make mistakes, and self-regulation is a key aspect in being proactive about that kind of thing. It's so important that we teach this to students because when they are self-regulated, self-disciplined, independent, and know that they have control and power to dictate how something happens, there is a much more sane and a much more balanced classroom community that you're able to cultivate. Christine Mraz and Christine Hertz corroborate the importance of positive internal dialogue and self-talk in their work, A Mindset for Learning, which is one of my favorite texts, and I carry it everywhere with me now. They state, much like highways are built on ancient paths that have been used for hundreds of years, our brains create high-speed connections around our most common types of thinking. If this is true, then whatever our most common type of thinking is, We are creating those pathways for self-talk that is guided by that thinking. So for example, a perfect example actually, is in my elementary math methods class. If we're constantly telling ourselves that we are not math people, I'm not good at math, I'll never be good at math, I really suck at math, then we're always going to be telling ourselves with that internal dialogue that we can't do it. And that's going to project outwards onto not only our language, but onto the work that we produce and the attitudes we convey in class. So it's critical that we teach students self-discipline, self-regulation, self-motivation, all those independent forms of being and ways of guiding behavior. It's important to teach them those skills in order for them to successfully be able to make independent decisions 
and contribute positively to the classroom community as a result. Keeping everyone sane. Keeping balance. Allowing the teacher to create balance because, you know what? They're able to focus on other things. They're able to focus on what's important. They're able to focus on creating a community of learners, addressing inquiries, and creating content and opportunities for learning and processing and entering disequilibrium that really adhere to students' wants and needs. Students who are self-sufficient can make class run smoothly. They can ease burdens on the teacher to direct and coordinate everything. And they just help everyone stay sane and create balance in their lives. And I know that this question was directed at me as an educator. How will I keep sanity in the classroom and balance in my life? And I strongly believe that if my students are holding themselves accountable, if I have a cohort of students who are self-sufficient and independent, are autonomous and can hold themselves accountable, and realize that they contribute to the outcomes of our classroom community, our little community of learners, then I've done my job. And I don't really need to worry about keeping balance in my life because I know that my community of learners is ready to roll and we are ready to tackle whatever comes our way. The second question I want to address is, how does your teacher, meaning my mentor teacher, handle the quote-unquote race against the clock? Now, what a funny question this is, because we all know that that is so true. Whether it's from literally not enough time in the day, the curriculum being too dense and too big, the fact that we're in a virtual environment half the time with our students and an in-person environment, So there's a separation between the learning that happens virtually and in person. Whatever it might be, we face it, no matter what situation we're in. And my teacher, (laughs) I actually had a funny experience last Friday. He showed me the math that we, that he is expected, and now I guess we, uh, (laughs) we're expected to get through in six weeks. I was astounded. (laughs) And he reminded me that, you know, half of this instruction for these students is virtual. And I can only get about a third of what I need to get done virtually. That is awful. And I feel so bad for him. He's racing against this six-week clock, right? And at this point, he has had to pick and choose what are the most important concepts, what are the most fundamental concepts that students need to grasp in order to be able to move on to the next thing. That's devastating. However, he has reassured me that that is okay, and that's what you have to do. You have to make sure that your students know those integral, fundamental, foundational concepts that will carry them over into other learning in the future, into necessary work and information that they'll encounter, whatever it might be in the future. Things build off of each other. We know that, especially as students are going through the upper elementary grades where I'm at. Rich Fernandez, in his article, Mindful Practices at Work, states that we often mistake the urgent for the important, but working with sustained pace and intensity over a long period of time is counterproductive. Creating space between periods of intense activity enables high performance, productivity, and creativity that can sustain itself over time. If my mentor teacher tried to cram everything that the curriculum wants him to cover in six weeks with his students, he would be having to do back-to-back-to-back math lessons all day long. 
And we all know, even as adults, that is almost impossible to sustain. And it's impossible to sustain for 5th and 6th graders. If he was trying to just go back to back to back with all of these parts of a unit and things that he has to get through and this section and that and this work and how he can support this, it would not be beneficial. That sustained pace and intensity is counterproductive. Students wouldn't be retaining everything, anything for that matter. And honestly, they would probably grow to believe that they are not good at math. They would probably develop a really negative math mindset, a really fixed math mindset that they're telling themselves every day, I can't do this. I cannot do this much math. This is impossible. I cannot do it. And my mentor teacher strives to do the exact opposite of that. And how he does that is he introduces those fundamental concepts. He works through those throughout the week and makes sure that he incorporates other opportunities for students to enter periods of processing and disequilibrium that do not necessarily come right from the Bridges book that we are pulling a lot of this curriculum content from. We do data talks in class where my mentor teacher will present a graphic, a table, a magic square, something that students have to engage with that will really send them into disequilibrium. And when I say disequilibrium, that's a period of time when students might not be getting something. They might feel as though they're stuck in a process and they're not quite at a quote-unquote right answer or a solution, but that process actually proves to increase their productivity, to make them see math as a puzzle that needs to be solved, and it encourages them to keep going further, especially when a teacher fosters an environment that supports disequilibrium and praises when students enter disequilibrium because that means that they're thinking, they're being analytical, they're being real mathematicians, they are thinking so deeply about something that they've entered a state where they have to ponder so hard about what to do next. And that's what we want and that's what we foster because that one skill in and of itself, that ability to say, okay, I'm in a spot right now where I might not even know what to do. But if I put my head together with my partner, if I talk this out with my class, if I feel comfortable in this state of disequilibrium, I can continue forward. I can ask probing questions. I can justify my thinking. I can explain my reasoning. And I can move forward as a mathematician productively and ready for whatever is going to come at me next. And that's exactly what I want to do as well. That's how we handle the race against the clock in a... (laughs) fifth and sixth grade math at my in my classroom and it's proving to work very well and it's the most joy the most fun to see students in a state where they are posing conjectures and they're making inferences and when they shout I have a noticing because they're in a state of disequilibrium and they found something that they believe is getting them closer to being out of that or overcoming that or maybe entering a new part of that it's amazing And they're going to need that forever. And I'm so glad we're combating the race against the clock with these really essential fundamental skills. It's great. I love every single second of it. I could talk about my students and how cool the things that they say are and the things that they do are. But, alas, (laughs) I think it is time that I end this episode of I Statement. I really hope you've enjoyed listening, and if there are any fellow educators out there who can relate, I would love to hear it. It is so interesting the time that we're in, and I'd love to hear how other folks are navigating 
not only these questions that I answered, but how you're navigating maybe a flex hybrid environment, a fully remote learning environment, a back to in-person environment. What's that looking like? It's so interesting to see how different schools are handling the the circumstances given by COVID-19. I really look forward to navigating these periods of disequilibrium and maybe a balance between <laughs> sanity and balance in the classroom as I keep at my student teaching experience. But I'm really excited. Overall, I'm excited. This is giving me joy. I'm genuinely happy to be in a classroom. And I'm really fortunate to be able to do so. And I got into grad school. Oh, that's so cool. Sorry, just going to plug it one last time. It's so cool. <laughs> I'm so excited about it. Again, I'm not going to dumb it down. You should not be dumbing anything down that you feel accomplished for and proud of. Don't do that. Anyway, have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful week. And I'll see you next Monday. Thank you.